Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr. and I'm pleased to be joined today by Lamar Hardwick. Lamar has a Doctor of Ministry from Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary and is known as the Autism Pastor. He's also the lead pastor at Tri-Cities Church in East Point, Georgia. He is the author of Epic Church and the best-selling I Am Strong, The Life and Journey of an Autistic Pastor. In 2014, after years of silently struggling with social anxiety and sensory processing disorder, along with a host of other significant issues, Hardwick was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder at the age of 36. He now provides workshops, seminars, and consults with local churches and faith-based organizations on creating environments for people with autism. He also provides mentoring services for teens and young adults on the autism spectrum. His writing has been published by various autism and disability websites, such as The Mighty, The Huffington Post, Key Ministry, and the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. Lamar lives in Noonan, Georgia, with his wife Isabella and their three children. So, welcome to the show, Lamar. Uh, what else would you like our listeners to know about yourself? Wow, that uh, pretty much covers it. I think um, just an interesting fun fact is I grew up um, a military brat. Um, yeah. So I lived all over the world, um, which which shapes a lot of uh, my thoughts and my theology about diversity, having grown up in different cultures. So that's just a fun fact for people to know. What was your favorite? Do you have a favorite place uh, that you lived in outside? Because you, you lived all over the world, correct? Yeah, primarily um, in Germany, um, I did, did mm. two, two tours in Germany. Um, but while there, we visited so many countries, Holland, Austria. Um, so we just had, by the time I was 11 years old, I had a chance to experience um, a lot of things that most kids haven't got a chance to experience by that age. So yeah, um, I'll say I, I enjoyed Holland a lot. Um, I was very young, but I still have vivid memories of uh, visiting there. Very colorful um, with all the flowers and mm-hmm. Uh, the architecture so yeah that i enjoyed that time there great talk about uh share what you will about your your kind of journey of faith um how you came to faith and what that looks like today yeah so i i grew up what's known as a pk for your listeners that's a preacher's kid or pastor's kid um so my dad i always say that there's two things that really shaped my life uh one was my father was a military man uh, and the second was he was a minister. Mm-hmm. So from a very early age, we learned um, to be able to give our lives over to something greater than ourselves as mm-hmm. he was serving the country, but also uh, serving as a as a pastor. Um, so, you know, I always, always had that sense that there was something greater to give my life to. Um, but, you know, like most preacher's kids, you sort of get an age where you start to resist it a little bit because you spend a lot of time in church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. so, um, you know, my journey of faith was, it was, wasn't one where I ever, I don't remember ever questioning, having a time where I questioned God or questioned Jesus. 
uh, or their existence. I think it wasn't until my late teenage years where uh, I started to feel like there was some application to all the things I had learned to how I could actually live my life. So that journey was one of always knowing and sort of believing. I just grew up that way to being able to actually see how does this impact my life. And that hit right around the age of you know, 18, 19, um, when I was in, in college. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm not, I don't remember reading this in the book, but how did, did you have like a call to ministry or, a, a when did you sense the, the desire to go into full-time ministry? Yeah, that's a great question actually. Um, and I don't know that it's in the book. I, I think it's in my first book maybe, but, um, yeah. So right around that time when I said I started to get a sense of how my faith actually applied to real life about 18 or 19 it's around the time I started sensing uh, a quote unquote call. Um, mm -hmm. and it's, it's a really long story. I'll give you the short version. I was in a, a, a car accident. My, I can't recall if it's my freshman or sophomore year. Um, and, um, in that car were a bunch of people that I really cared about. Uh, and in that time, uh, I sort of had this sense that God was, <clears throat> I call it my Jonah story. You know how Jonah jumped on the boat? Yeah, yeah. And the sailor's life was doing fine until Jonah <laughs> got in the, on the boat. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. I kind of liken myself to Jonah. I feel like like everybody would have been fine if it wasn't for me running from God. And so mm. I sort of got this sense of this deep connection between how I lived my life and how it impacted others. And when I learned that what I do with my life has a tremendous impact on others' lives is when I sense, okay, God may be calling me to something bigger than myself because obviously what I do matters not just to my own life, but it matters to other people's lives. And so from yeah. that point, I started making those connections. And then I think formally, I uh, right around the age of 21, 22, uh, I went to uh, the pastor of the local church I was at and said, I, I believe I have a call uh, from God. So it took about two or three years to make sense of that. But it was just mm -hmm. making the connection that, you know what, your life is bigger than you and what you do impacts other people. And God can use that to help people. Yeah. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Um, mm -hmm. Talk about a spiritual practice that has been meaningful to you or you might recommend others. Yeah, so many. Um, so, so I'm a huge... Um, over the last couple of years have become huge on prayer. Not that I wasn't before. Mm -hmm. um, but but for me, it's very much a centering practice, especially mm -hmm. when I, I learned that the goal wasn't always to have a list of things I wanted God to, to do for me, but just yeah. an opportunity for uh, a relationship. So, so for me, you know, that's one of the the first things I do in the morning, I know everybody's not a morning person, but I get up really mm -hmm. early for some reason. Um, but I, I think the way that that has developed um, over the years, especially maybe the last five years, is I started the discipline of actually writing out the prayers. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. So it went from something that would just be in my head that I would mm -hmm. be saying to things I actually wrote down. Uh, so even if you look at my phone now or if everyone ever goes back on my social media, you'll see um, years of times where I'll share prayers that I've actually written. Mm. Um, and so it, it for me, it's a good discipline because I can go back and reread those prayers and see where yeah. I was at yeah. uh, during that time of my life. 
Um, and sometimes I repray them. Um, so that's just sort of marries my, my, uh, discipline of player with my passion and gift for writing. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Thanks for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of your passion and gift for writing, uh, I was talking with Lamar before we started recording and telling him that, uh, I read his book, Disability in the Church, A Vision for Diversity and Inclusion in about 48 hours last week. I had some time I took away, and I obviously wanted to read the book in preparation for this interview, uh, but I kind of got enraptured by, you know, the skill of his writing, to be honest. Um, So talk a little bit about the story, uh, about how how the book came to be, why you chose to write it, that Mm kind of thing. Yeah, so um, as you said in the the intro in 2014, December of 2014, I was um, diagnosed on the autism spectrum. Uh, that came after years. I, I tell people I always knew as a child that there were significant differences between me and other children. I started to pick up on that around age seven. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though I had a late in life diagnosis, and that's due to a number of factors, moving a lot, um, not mm-hmm. being as educated back in you know, the early seventies, early eighties. Um, but, but I knew there was, it was, I was like, the world was in on the inside joke that I didn't understand. And mm-hmm. so I, I faked a lot of things, mm-hmm. um, and was able to successfully do that, um, for years and still not really knowing why don't I understand things that people are talking about or, um, come to find out it's, you know, most of we've heard this saying that 90% of all communication is nonverbal. Um, mm. So for most people on the spectrum, we don't understand nonverbal. And so you imagine if the world is communicating ways around me that I don't understand, I can be totally lost. Yeah. And it, it impacts employment, it impacts jobs, uh, impacts relationships, education. Um, so when I was finally diagnosed, I realized uh, even at age 36, how much of a struggle my life had been without me knowing it. Um, well, I'll say I knew it, but I didn't have a label for it. Sure. Uh, sure. And I also realized how significant, uh, a, the role the church had played in my life, even though I had significant challenges with doing church younger, even though I love the church, mm-hmm. um, church is highly social, especially in the West. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and when you don't understand all the social norms and the unhidden rules, yeah, you know, you can kind of stick out like a sore thumb and sometimes be ostracized without knowing why. Um, but yet, I still had a deep love for the church. Uh, and so, when I was diagnosed, I realized I have had the benefit of struggling through some things and struggled my way into some success as a pastor. How many mm-hmm. other people um, could benefit from me using? my story as an opportunity to encourage and challenge the church to look at things a little bit differently. Uh, and so the book is, is really me understanding that the church is probably the most underutilized spiritual resource for persons in the disability community. And because of my love for the church, I wanted to critique the church, but also help the church gain some tools on how to how to do better because if it if it was something that helped me uh even unknowingly uh i think it can be a tremendous resource for other people in the disability community yeah 
Yeah. Um, one of the things that really uh, struck me at the beginning of the book, kind of your first beginning chapters, as I remember, is I got the sense that at least the f- that the first half, first quarter, I don't remember exactly, was almost like a book on. It was almost like a theology of the body, or you're, it's almost as if you're writing a theology of the body or a theology on disability. Mm-hmm. Um, can you can you talk more about that? I, if my assuming my uh, recollection or whatever the word I'm trying to think of, my take on that is correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's absolutely correct. Um, I wanted to I wanted to do a couple things in the book. I wanted to have enough um, theology to set a foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, and, and also to expose people to probably a new branch of theology that they have not been exposed to. Yeah. Um, because there's an entire take, uh, on the scriptures and theology from a person who is disabled, um, that I think most people have not been exposed to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I wanted to have enough theology enough, um, make it academic enough to be respected by, um, you know, the academy, but also accessible enough to where anyone can read it. And it's not yeah. so lofty that you can't, you know, make sense of it. So, and I didn't want it to be long. So I've mm-hmm. set out to say, I'm going to try to do this in under 200 pages. Um, I think it ended up like 208, but, um, so yeah, the, the, the first half is really sort of talking about the, the theology, um, understanding sort of returning back to a couple of core, ideas um one being us all being reflectors of god's image Mm -hmm. and understanding that uh disability does not have the ability to mar the image of god that's seen in people yeah um also you know there's a lot of ecclesiology in there trying to help us understand the church Mm -hmm. the nature of the church and so i have a chapter uh called born this way and um I talk about why the church was born, um, that Jesus announces to Peter and his disciples that he was going to give them the keys uh, to the kingdom, mm-hmm. uh, which symbolizes that one of the major roles of the church is to give persons access to the kingdom. And and so you know, we talk about that, but we also talk about um, a lot of other things such as, um, you know, answering the hard questions about healing, uh, Jesus's healing ministry. Uh, mm-hmm. What does that mean? What do we take from that? Um, what are we to assume if someone is not healed? Um, and I also uh, spend a section on talking about um, heaven. Is there a disability in heaven? Um, what yeah. does that look like? That was so uh, good. Yeah, I think those are questions that we don't really ask. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that we, we have a lot of assumptions. Yeah. And, and that section, let me say this, that section was really about asking better questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. because we, like myself, I've always assumed um, that some of the things that Paul wrote meant, oh, we're going to, we're all going to get new bodies. And I'm not saying that mm-hmm. that's not the case, but, you know, let's be honest, at that time, Paul hadn't been to heaven. So yeah, <laughs> he's kind of giving us some imagery that I think we need to rethink. Mm-hmm. Um, but also what I found is if for the Christian Heaven is our ideal. That is God's ideal conclusion to mm-hmm. uh, the human experiment. What I'm challenging us to think of is, is if our ideal doesn't include the presence of disabled bodies, how much harder is it for us 
to recreate those sacred spaces here on earth. So it's sort of a challenge to say, you know, why don't we see a lot of people with disabilities in our churches? Because we have this idealized version of what it means to create sacred spaces. Yeah. And, and, and in those ideas, we never think about disabled bodies, which makes it even harder to do it here. Um, so I just wanted us to really wrestle with that and see what, what does the Bible actually say about that? And let's ask better questions about those types of things. Yeah, folks, these chapters are so good. Uh, I appreciate you highlighting them again. I know on, on page 71, I highlighted this. You asked the question, does my, speaking of asking questions, does my disability mm. distort the reflection of God's image in me? Mm. Uh, I know that really stood out to me. And I'm glad you, you, you brought up um, Jesus' healing ministry because uh, you brought an approach to it. I may have heard before, but it really struck me, at least in a new way, of Jesus' healing ministry being about bringing people, is it back into community, as you'd say mm -hmm. it, or, or into yeah. community? Yeah, absolutely. About restoring their place in community. Um, mm. so, so you see all in the, in the text, um, most of the, most persons with disabilities in the text are uh, pushed out into the margins of society. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, um, you know, most of Jesus's healing ministry, actually, if you study it, happens early on in his earthly ministry. Uh, primarily to just establish his divinity. Mm -hmm. um, but in each occasion, it is a opportunity to restore those persons back into the community from which they've been disconnected from. So, so the question then is, if, if Jesus didn't heal everybody, we see in the text um, times where he went away and didn't heal. Mm -hmm. um, if he didn't heal everybody, then what's the underlining reason for yeah. it? Uh, and that is that you see a trend where it's about restoring them back to community and restoring their dignity and also restoring um, the disability community's faith in, in the church community or the community of faith. Uh, because there has been such a disconnect that a lot of them had lost their faith in this faith that they wanted to hold so dearly, but it didn't seem like it was actually working for them. Um, so you see sort of a double healing there um, when he does heal, not just the body, but he's healing the disability community's faith in their faith, uh, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, I know you talk, you spend some time talking about um, resurrection, and that was, I don't know if I've even grasped the concept enough to ask you a coherent question about it, mm -hmm. but it really made me think about the, the doctrine of the bodily resurrection in a new way. Mm -hmm. uh, because of your, your your conversation about it, yeah, that's that's um, a discussion I I picked up on from um, the late Nancy Eastland uh, mm -hmm. in her book The Disabled God, um, and she does a lot of great work, and I it was attempting to sort of pick up on that and uh, carry the mantle. Mm -hmm. so, so when we think about the bodily resurrection, if we look at all of the places where we see those images of, of Jesus, uh, he returns uh, with the same body. And so mm -hmm. what I wanted to do was actually sort of get us out of the sanitized Sunday school version of that. Yeah. <laughs> that we all learned, yeah. right? Um, uh, you know, one, our idea of resurrection, our, our idea of a crucifixion, rather, is not necessarily the type that the Romans would have actually done. Mm -hmm. um, 
and so I talk about that a little bit about well, how how much damage would have actually been done to Jesus's body. Yeah. Um, his tendons. There are several uh, tendons in the wrists and nerve endings. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he comes back, those are not healed. Yeah. Um, so so if they're not healed, that would have been a tremendously disabling uh, incident where. You know, I've, and I talk about this in the book. I've torn an Achilles tendon, and I know what it's like. Um, you can only and, imagine. Yeah, and so you know, you don't walk around and still function the same way. Um, mm. We also see in Revelation where it talks about the the image that John gives. It says that the lamb slash lion was mortally wounded yet standing, mm. uh, and it's sort of this play on words where the wounds that he had were um, deathly wounds. Yet at the same time, he was still functioning. So it's sort of a nod to these are disabling wounds that would have otherwise caused death, but because he's resurrected and they're still, and the thing about it is they're still there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think it has a lot to do with um, the early church's ideas of, you see a lot of Paul's writing where they refer to the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And I think I think we have to wrestle with what does that say about uh, our ideas of the body, our ideas of disability? If we're looking at the fact that Jesus returned with these same disabling marks, um, and from there it seems like this there's a whole now movement to describe the the faith as a body. You start mm-hmm. to see that more and more uh, in the text after the resurrection, and so I think those are things that we have to really consider um not that i have the answers but i think we have not been asking those questions yeah you know when i when i was reading this i was thinking about and i don't know if this is where you're going with it but i was thinking about how uh how i in my perceptions at least uh american christianity has really maybe i don't know how long but in recent years in my recent memory been kind of elevating the importance of having a holistic faith where we honor our body as opposed to this kind of dualistic faith. Um, it, and it kind of like almost reemphasizes the importance of the bodily resurrection of Jesus because we're going to say like, hey, if our body matters here on earth, if we're supposed to care for our body and take care of our body, like it makes sense that God would seek to resurrect the body too. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I think I think that's what we see. And that's, that's what I was um, discussing in some of the texts that I know where our ideas of um, the new body um, theology come from? Yeah, where Paul talks about that. But 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 when I study that, it doesn't actually appear that that's actually what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, he's using imagery about uh, a tent, which is a common Hellenistic um, term to talk about mm-hmm. the body, and what he seems to be talking about is an addition to, not a replacement of, uh, and so. For me, that made more sense because now you see something is added um, to the body that takes away maybe the pain, the shame, the stigma of those things that were disabling in this world. But yet the body remained the same. And we see that one of the best cases for that is is Jesus. His body remained the way that it was mm-hmm. when he was resurrected, but without all of the... And I think some of that is just the stuff that is untangled from this world that makes us ashamed of disability or makes us ashamed of suffering. 
I think maybe those things are removed because we're not seeing ourselves the same Interesting. way. Interesting. Yeah. Um, we're not, and I say this in the book, I think in the beginning you see um, one of the results of the sin in the garden is this adversarial relationship we have with our bodies. Uh, mm, the first yeah. thing that Adam and Eve want to do is cover themselves. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that's been the struggle uh, more so than the actual physical limitations. And, and again, those are very real challenges. I have them myself. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things that Paul may have been giving a nod to is that those things will go away. And it's sort of a reversal of this adversarial relationship we've had with our bodies. Yeah. Really good stuff here. Uh, I have one more kind of like nerdy theological question and then we'll mm-hmm. go into some more practical stuff. But I really enjoyed this the, this section of the book. Um, so you talk about the image of, of table and that especially stood out to me because I serve in a denomination that really uh, one of our one of our big things is weekly communion and the table imagery really stands out as a key mm-hmm. part of our, our liturgy or worship style. Um, talk more about the table, the relevance to the church and to the disabled community. Yeah, so that section is um, is talking about the Luke 14 passage about the banquet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you're, I'm assuming most listeners know that Jesus invited to this dinner party at the Pharisee's house. There they invite a man with dropsy, um, which would sort of be like a modern-day version of congestive heart failure. He had mm. some kind of condition that causes his limbs to swell terribly mm-hmm. um but in that party um jesus tells a story about a party and he talks about uh, the servant going out and inviting people who decline the invitation to the banquet and eventually uh the master in the story tells him to go out and to invite the blind the lame the cripple and the poor those who are on the margins uh, primarily those who are in the disability community mm-hmm. one of the things that um, I think Jesus is pointing to, and he actually says this um, explicitly before telling the story, is that the persons who were at the dinner party were all trying to sit in the seats of honor. Yeah. Um, and he tells them, and I ended, I end one of the chapters by saying that the seats of honor have been stolen, and it's time to give them back. Because, yeah. It's powerful. Because Jesus says, "Look, when you're start, when you're starting to build this banquet or you're setting the table, start with this community first. Mm-hmm. Start with the disability community, the marginalized first. What's interesting in that story that Jesus tells, the servant comes back after inviting all those people and says, I've done this and there's still room for more. And mm-hmm. what I have challenged pastors, because it's, it's always a thing that seems like a very difficult conversation to have uh, about how we're trying to reach the disability community. Yep. And yep. one of the things I run into is, well, we don't have it in our budget. We can't. It just never seems to fit. Yeah. Setting the table the right way ensures that if, if you set the table the right way and invite that community first, there's always room for everything else you want to do in your church. Um, so, so that imagery of setting the table is really just reprioritizing the way that we set the table <clears throat> and reprioritizing who we invite to the to this grand banquet that Jesus is talking about, um, which is an illustration of his kingdom. And and really challenging the church to say, you know, I think part of the reason why it's so hard to do this in churches is because we built the table backwards. We built the church mm-hmm. backwards. Yeah. Uh, if, if we reorganize it, I think we'll see a much better uh, effectiveness of the church. 
Um, but Jesus says, look, build it this way, set the table this way, and everything else will fall in line. It reminds me, um, are, are you familiar with like the, the, what's the one am I trying to say? The object lesson, that's the word I'm looking mm-hmm. for, of mm-hmm. like when you have a jar and, you know, you fill it up with big rocks and they'll say, like, is it full? And people say, yes, it's full. And then someone put it in pebbles and then is it full? Yeah. And it, it reminds me of like, so often, if I hear you right, what we're essentially putting in the sand or the water first and being like, it's full. And it is full because, but we, because we haven't, you know, because we haven't started with those foundational caring for the marginalized, mm-hmm. those big rocks. We don't have room for those big rocks. So we started with the, the incidentals of the sand and the water. Right. Absolutely. That's yeah, a perfect, perfect example. Um, yeah. It, it, I think it's something that we know instinctively, mm-hmm. but it, when it comes to the church, we have just sort of not understood the practicality of that. Another interesting point about that story when Jesus is talking about setting the table, uh, before he tells the story, he's, he tells them about not taking the seats of honor. Uh, he says, don't invite your brothers, your, your sisters, don't invite the people who can repay you. Repay you. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on to tell them, you know, invite this community. And what's interesting is he says that, and then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will repay you. And so it's almost like Jesus is saying that but when you set the table the right way, God uh, is responsible for reimbursement, right? And so there's a level, <laughs> there's yeah. a level of blessing that is brought into our churches and our organizations when we build it the right way. That doesn't exist when we don't start with that group. Yeah, some really good stuff. So let's let's dive in a little bit to then setting the table to use your uh, to use your imagery or metaphor here. I liked you use you look you walk through Psalm twenty three and I thought that was a really helpful kind of guideline or structure for thinking about in a practical way what this looks like in a church. So mm-hmm. talk us through that if you can. Yeah, so that section was um about how to provide pastoral care mm-hmm. uh to families that are impacted by disability or special needs. And I, I did that because I know that when I was diagnosed and I started to learn more about myself, I learned that there are ways that I needed to be led and I needed to be shepherded. Um, and so, uh, based on that experience, I said, you know, there's a different way that we have to, uh, care for and pastor these families that don't often, don't often go along with the pace of our churches. Um, and so one of the things about the 23rd Psalm is that David, does an extraordinary job of talking about how God shepherded him in a time of mm-hmm. distress. And so David being a shepherd is talking about how God shepherded him in meaningful ways. So for example, um, he talks about the fact that, um, one of the things I love is that God has no speaking role in the 23rd Psalm, mm. but yet David is acutely aware of his presence. And so mm-hmm. one of the points I make in the, about pastoring, families that are impacted by uh, disabilities or special needs is a lot of times as pastors and leaders, we feel the need to do, yeah. to say something, yeah. right? Yeah. To say something, to do something, to perform in some way. Uh, but yet David says, when God shepherded me, when I needed it, I was acutely aware of his presence, but God never said a word. And mm. so uh, it is learning how to practice a ministry of presence. And I say that because I, I have, having dealt with a lot of families who 
uh, either have children or teenagers or adults that they're having to constantly make doctor's appointments and, you know, mm. they have to be mm-hmm. on, you know, strategic about medication, every little part of their life. Uh, they're spending up precious cognitive energy making decisions every day. Yeah. One of the things that we don't understand as the church is because we're, especially in the West, we're so performative when it comes to our Christianity. Yep. We don't realize that sometimes the ways that we attempt to care for others is more draining because we're asking them to perform along with us. It's great. So they're, great. they're having to ask question, answer questions all the time. They're having to, you know, be available for us uh, so that yeah. we can care for them. And, yeah. And so, so what I want people to understand is that, um, and this is probably more of an Eastern practice is, is just practice of ministry of presence. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I spent a few years as a hospice chaplain Yeah, and there, yeah. Been t- there were times when I would go out on an on call for an emergency and just sit with the family for hours and we never said a word. Yeah. Um, but it was just being present and available and not making them have to answer questions or perform or feel yeah. like they had to spend their, their precious cognitive energy entertaining me. Yeah. Uh, it, it was just to be present. So that's just one example of how the 23rd Psalm, and there are many others about, you know, God um, learning, that David learns that God helps him to walk through shadowy places. And I mm-hmm. talk about um, one of the shadows that is cast by death is grief. Mm. I, and so I use that as an analogy to talk about how to help families walk through the grief of having constant loss, not death, but loss. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because they're losing a lot mm-hmm. from day to day. Um, and then I also talk about how one of the things I love about David is um, as a shepherd, he's talking about God shepherding him. There's a point in David's life where we learn something about him that we don't know. And that's when he shows up to fight Goliath. Mm-hmm. And he says something that I think most people miss. He says, I've been fighting lions and bears. And so we didn't know that about David. We didn't know that he was back in the wilderness fighting all of these things that nobody knew he was fighting against. And so I use that as an analogy to say one of the reasons why David is so grateful for God leading him to places of peace is because he's been fighting battles that nobody knows about. And a lot of times families that are impacted by disabilities and special needs are fighting battles. They're fighting lions and bears in the wilderness and nobody knows that they've been fighting those. Yeah. And so one of the ways that we can be helpful to them is to be a place of peace for them and not uh, a place of pressure where they're trying to fit into our programs and they have to be on time or we're closing down the children's wing at this time. Yeah. Yeah. And I used to tell a former staff uh, in my past church, I used to tell them, in the grand scheme of all things eternal, how big of a deal is it that they showed up 15 minutes late? Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. fighting battles all week long yeah. through doctors and therapies and medications. The last thing they need to do is come to church and fight another battle. So yeah. we need to be a place of peace for them because Boy, they're so fighting good. They're fighting things that we don't know that they're fighting against. So good. Uh I was wondering if you'd had hospital chaplaincy experience because that made me really think about uh, I did some CPE myself. and That was one of those kind of basic teachings they, they taught me was like, you know, so often this desire to say the right thing or to mm-hmm. is really based on our own anxiety and right. managing our own anxiety uh, and not, as you say, asking them to perform something so that we feel better about ourselves. Um, yeah. So good. Um, yeah. Last thing, uh, talk about the the parable of the sower. Uh, you draw some really interesting uh, lessons from there as well. 
Yeah, so that section goes into um, transitions to the last part of the book where we use some some practical advice and some tips. Mm-hmm. And really, it's it's um, what I've discovered is the majority of what needs to happen in our churches to become more accommodating and inclusive is we need to take a look at the environments that we've created. Mm-hmm. And so um, the parable of the sower is a great analogy for that because yeah. one of the things you notice is that Jesus never blames the seed. Yeah. When 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 he's talking about this sower goes out to sow the seed, he says it's the environment that is stopping the seed from growing. Mm-hmm. So what I believe, and if you tie this all together with the early parts of the book about the theology of, of the Imago Dei, everybody being reflectors of God's image, um, that disability does not distort or mar the image of God. Mm-hmm. So then the question is, why don't we often see that reflected in how we treat people? I, I think a lot of it is environment because Jesus says, look, the seed is fine. A seed will always do what it's designed to do. And so for whatever level a person is dealing with disability, uh, they still very much have a purpose and God has a plan for their life and they are still very much image bearers. And so if that's not accurately being reflected, it's not them. Mm-hmm. It's the environment that they're in. And so, um, you know, just quickly, Jesus gives us three scenarios where the environments can be different. The first one, he says, the seed hits the ground and it doesn't actually take root because a bird comes and steals it away. And his explanation is there's a lack of understanding. Mm-hmm. So I talk about creating an environment of learning, learning about disability, you know, whether it's, whether it's preaching more about it. Uh, just creating an environment in our churches where it's not something that's unspoken and people are uneducated. The second one, Jesus says, it hits the ground and it actually grows. But then later on, when he interprets, he says that the sun beats down on it and it withers away because it has no roots. So while the first environment that we need to focus on is learning, the second one is linking. He says that mm-hmm. part of the reason why it falls away is it has no roots. And so I challenge the church to think about how are we creating environments that don't just make room for people with disabilities, but help them make roots in our church. Think about mm-hmm. when Jesus interprets, he says that the sun is the equivalent to life's problems. So what are some real life problems that people with disabilities in their families face? Mm-hmm. And how can we create small groups around that? How can we create opportunities for community around those things that actually address real life issues? So not just a group that meets for Bible study and throws a bunch of scriptures at them. But yeah. But this group now becomes something that actually helps them address real life issues. So, for example, how do we create groups for respite if a family just needs Mm -hmm, a break? mm -hmm. Can we have a small group that says we'll rotate and once a month, you know, you can go out on a date or you can go out uh, and Christmas shop during the holidays and we'll take care of the kids. So these are groups that are helping with rooting people in our churches. And then the last group is Jesus says that the seed hits the ground. It's growing. You can actually see it. The problem is it's not, it's not bearing any fruit. Mm-hmm. And he says that it's the thorns that are choking out the fruit. Mm-hmm. And there what I say is that every person has a unique gift and, and that God has for them to add to the vibrancy of the church. If, if they're not bearing fruit, then we need to look at our systems that may be choking out the fruit mm-hmm. that they could be bearing. Yeah. It's not always them. And a lot of times in church, we get so angry with people who don't serve. Yep. Yep. And what I've learned is a lot of times it's not them. It's the way that we set things up that so is actually good. choking yeah, out so fruit. Good. They would be much more fruitful if we 
reorganize things in ways that help. And that's even very much true of persons with disabilities. They still have gifts and skills Mm -hmm. that can add to the mission and vision and values of our church. And so think about, you know, from every area of the church, if we're doing missions, if we're doing evangelism, if we're doing anything that we do, have we made it accessible to everyone in the church so that they can find their place of fruitfulness? Sometimes our policies and our procedures and just the way that we do things are barriers. So I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. I was consulting with a church that you talked about the table being uh, a huge part of the liturgy at your church, mm-hmm. which is also in my church. We do communion every week as well. Um, I consulted with a church years ago that was doing it at night. And I mm. said, that's fine. But you have a whole contingency of elderly people who don't see well, who yeah. will never be able to participate in one of the rituals of the church because yeah. you're choosing to do it at a time that is not convenient for them. And yeah. so you have, you're dividing the body and you're, you're prohibiting them from something that is very meaningful, a meaningful spiritual practice for them. That's just one example. Um, I've consulted with churches where I told them, you're going to have to turn the lights up. You can't have the rock show because you have elderly <laughs> people who can't see. And, yeah. you know, they're not coming to church because they they can't make their way down to their seat. They can't mm-hmm. see. So we need to figure out um, sometimes they're just unintentional barriers to people being able to participate in the full life of the church and to be fruitful. And we have to be willing to examine those practices and say, if this is stopping somebody from being fruitful in their service to Christ, then is should we change the policy about that? Should we change the programming? Should we change the time? Uh, in my former church, um, we changed the whole summer program to accommodate one family wow. who had two children with special needs because it was a barrier for them. Mm-hmm. And so rather than say, no, this is how we do it, we said, no, we want them to be able to receive the gospel. We want them to be able to participate in the full life of the church. And so we will open up a room in the summer just for them, mm-hmm. even though we had no other children. Um, because we want them to be included in the full life of the church and for their life to be just as fruitful as anyone else. Wow. So it's, it's really about environment. And I think you'll see that when we get the environments right, as Jesus says, you know, it's not the seed's fault. The seed will do what it's designed to do if you make the soil right. Yeah, that was something that I've always heard that parable in such an individualistic context that it really kind of blew my mind think about i think you say in the book something like the seed is not responsible for growth or something to that extent like the Mm -hmm. seed's going to do what the seed's going to do you say Mm -hmm. but this communal nature of that parable i thought was a beautiful telling of the parable um i was just talking to someone in a a a recent interview that i think will probably air before this we talked about Mm. if you've heard the term homogenized unit principle it's kind of like the same thing we're talking about here that like you can't expect someone who's new to the church and wants to serve to be like oh now go join this committee that meets like mm-hmm. you know meets like wednesday at 10 a.m <laughs> right right yeah 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 and i and i love the parable because you talk about the communal aspect one of the things that sort of tipped me off of that is that it, it's beautiful because a lot of parables that jesus tells he tells parables and he uses people mm-hmm. right and it's our human nature to want to identify with the hero of the story. So yeah, if it's yeah. a prodigal son or if yep. it's, we're identifying. But the parable of the sower is not about people. It's about process. Mm, the the sower good. the sower scatters a seed and then he exits stage left and he's not even a part of the story anymore. Then the focus is on the process. How do we get the seed to produce? Mm-hmm. So what Jesus does is he takes away our ability to make it about us. 
because there's no person to identify with. It's it's so about good. the process of helping so people grow and, and to be fruitful. So then if it's not about us, it's about the community and how do we create an environment where everybody can flourish and be fruitful in their service to, to God. I'm writing this down, folks. It's so good. Uh, really appreciate. Got to recommend the book, uh, Disability in the Church, A Vision for Diversity and Inclusion. So let's take a break, and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Lamar Hardwick, and uh, great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Appreciate uh, appreciate the book. Um, for these closing questions, I always tell folks you can take these as seriously or not as you'd like to. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you're Pope for a day, and, uh, you know, being serious or not, you know, don't feel like you have to have a serious answer. Um, and, you know, whatever Pope means to you, I'll say. <laughs> Pope for the day. Wow. Um, that's a good one. I, I would say I'd probably, you know, I live in a- Atlanta. So um, one of the challenges is always when the Falcons are playing getting people to come to church. <laughs> yeah. So if I were Pope for the day, I'd figure out a way to fix that schedule so that people can enjoy both. <laughs> so that I'm not seeing half my church on TV. <laughs> yeah. I live in, wow. yeah. I live in Denver and those, those, uh, 11 AM, uh, mountain standard time starts are brutal. Brutal. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, a, his, a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life. Wow, so many. Um, you know, I, I would probably say uh, the Apostle Paul. Mm. Um, only because I honestly think, like, and this is a joke, but I think when we get to heaven, Paul's going to run up to most of us preachers and say, is that what I really meant? <laughs> because we tend <laughs> to take his words and make up things. And so, like, I just very interested in like what did you really mean by that because mm. you know we tend to Good. make up our own yeah. interpretation yeah. of that what do you think history will remember from this current time and place wow i think uh in light of a lot of what happened last year like with the pandemic and a lot of things that we saw you know in the country mm-hmm. um I-, I think right now history looking back is going to say that we were given a window um, to really a mirror and a window to reflect on who we are uh, as people, who we are as the church, some of the ways that we've fallen short, uh, but then also a window into how we can make a lot of things right. And Mm. so I was saying this to someone the other day, I think we have a two to three year window where we're going to be able to really say, okay, there's a lot of things that we've gotten wrong hmm. as a church. Um, and I, I feel like this is an opportunity for us to, to pivot and get a lot of those things right. That's good. Mirror in a window. Um, what are your, what are your hopes? What do you hope for the future of Christianity? Wow, man. I, I hope that um, discussions like this, particularly with, uh, disability and other marginalized groups and mm-hmm. i'll say this maybe in the west because i haven't spent sure sure much time in the in the east i know we practice a different brand of christianity sometimes here mm-hmm. but but my hope is is that um what really really look at heart take a hard look at um like what's in the text and look at the life of jesus and the people that he spent his life serving 
uh, and gave his life to save and become far more serious about uh, doing the work that he did uh, more so than building up grand institutions that, uh, you know, for, for a while have done well. Mm-hmm. I think the pandemic has exposed a lot yep. of gaps that we have had in the church. Yeah. And, and so I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, we'll be able to, to, to get those things right. Yeah. Well, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, so the best way is um, my website, which is autismpastor.com. Again, autismpastor.com. On there, you can read, you know, past blogs and articles, uh, even links to articles from national publications that I've done. You can find the links to uh, my books. Um, So just about everything that you need to know, my social media is on there uh, as well. So that's the best way to sort of to find out what I'm doing and um, where you can connect with me. Well, thanks again for your time. Really enjoyed the conversation. Again, really recommend, really enjoyed the book. Recommend, this is not a video podcast, so I'm showing it to the camera, but <laughs> Disability in the Church. <laughs> uh, thanks again for your time, and may God's peace be with you. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is produced by Torn Curtain Arts in partnership with Resonate Media. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit futurechristian.com. If you've enjoyed the show and you think it would be valuable for others to hear, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. That really helps more people find us. Thanks again, and go in peace.